0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for December 14th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. What will 2019 usher into the world? Issues ahead include new uncertainties in that deal between the United Kingdom and the European Union over Brexit. And divided government here in the US, what will it mean for Democrats and Republicans? Will NASA continue to push further and further to outer space? And the economy, could the US face a recession? This week's issue of The Economist tries to answer all of that and more. Joining C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast is the executive editor of The Economist, Daniel Franklin. He sits down with us to discuss what the world will be like in the year ahead. Daniel Franklin, let's begin with the cover itself of The Economist, The World in 2019. What do you think it will represent?
1: Well, I think it'll be a, a wobbly year. All years look uncertain as you, as you approach them, but this one feels particularly so, both in politics and in the economy. I think we're in for a, a year where people are slightly hanging on to their, their seats for fears about what it could bring.
0: Let's talk about domestic politics first and President Trump, as you call it, The Trump Show, Season 2. And your colleagues write the following. For the past two years, the global political stage has been overshadowed by one man, President Donald Trump. He has divided America and dominated world affairs to a degree that no modern president has before. Can you elaborate?
1: Well, President Trump is, uh, I think, different in that he constantly... Uh, takes up a lot of the oxygen of media attention. He's also someone who has questioned the way that the world works more than perhaps any other president in modern history. And that set people wondering, trying to figure out what it means for them, uh, and how what might come next, because there's a seems to be a degree of unpredictability in it. And for, in 2019, I think we're into a new situation with the Congress, with the House of Representatives uh, under Democratic control, uh, and with all sorts of other things guaranteeing that season two is going to be every bit as as attention-grabbing as season one.
0: And you were right about his, quote, habitual lying, his attacks on the press, his willful stoking of grievances among his supporters, and all of this contributing to a mood in America that has made us more divided and angry than at any point since the 1960s.
1: Well, I think that's right. And and not just something that is a phenomenon in, in America. I think he's created waves and also a certain amount of division uh, abroad as well. So we're uh, in Europe, for example, looking at what President Trump might represent for the NATO alliance uh we're looking in China, what he might do to the long-term relationship with the other rising superpower in the world of of China. That's going to be, I think, a, a core theme for 2019. Uh, and then there's a relationship with, with Russia, another crucial one, which is going to be in the spotlight, not least because of the Mueller probe.
0: And we'll talk about international affairs, Brexit and China in just a moment. But one of the sidebar pieces in the latest edition of The Economist, The Field for 2020 – this is going to be a crowded Democratic field with many of the candidates announcing in the coming
1: months. I think that that's the the most certain thing you can say of it <laughs> that it's going to be big. Uh, partly because there is no obvious person who stands out as as being the, uh, the 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 leading contender in the way that Hillary Clinton was last time round. So that makes it both interesting and potentially. Problematic uh, for the Democrats. I think also quite a field day for President Trump, as he can pick off. I mean, loves nothing better than to brand his potential uh, opponent. So I think it'll be almost a bit like whack-a-mole for for President Trump. He'll he'll pick whoever whoever pick off whoever seems to be emerging as a strongish contender, and find ways to do them down.
0: What is your background? Where are you from
1: originally? I'm British. I'm from London originally. Uh, I was in Washington, actually, for four years under the first term of uh, President Clinton in the 1990s. Uh, But most of my career has been in, in Britain.
0: And when you spend time with friends and family in London or in Great Britain or across Europe, how do they view the current state of American politics?
1: Well, everybody is fascinating, I think. They're fascinated by the Trump phenomenon. Um, I, I think it's it's certainly the case that depending on where you are in the world, your obsession tends to be a little bit different. So here in Washington, the obsession is obviously Trump. In, in Britain, at the moment, the obsession is Brexit. Uh, and it occupies as much airtime as Donald Trump occupies here in Britain. If you're in China, where I was recently, it's all about uh, China-US relations. So Uh, It depends where you sit, but in in London, um, there is a great interest in uh, the Trump presidency and also quite often parallels are drawn between the sort of divided politics you have in America, you see in America increasingly, and the divided politics we have in Britain. So let's turn to Brexit and the piece that uh, your colleagues co-wrote, Who
0: Killed Brexit? I want to begin with what the British Prime Minister told the House of Commons on
2: Monday. I've listened very carefully to what has been said in this chamber and out of it. To what has been said in this chamber and out of it by members from all sides. From listening to those views, it is clear that while there is broad support for many of the key aspects of the deal, on one issue, on one issue, the Northern Ireland backstop there remains widespread and deep concern. As a result, if we went ahead and held the vote tomorrow, the deal would be rejected by a significant margin. We will therefore defer the vote scheduled for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time.
0: That was Monday. And then on Wednesday, the House of Commons, the Conservatives in a vote of no confidence at the British Prime Minister. After surviving that vote, here's what she said outside 10 Downing Street.
2: This has been a long and challenging day, but at the end of it, I'm pleased to have received the backing of my colleagues in tonight's ballot. Whilst I'm grateful for that support, a significant number of colleagues did cast a vote against me and I have listened to what they said. Following this ballot, we now need to get on with the job of delivering Brexit for the British people and building a better future for this country.
0: That was the British Prime Minister Theresa May on Wednesday in London. And Daniel Franklin,
1: you compare the death of Brexit to murder on the Orient Express. Can you explain? Well, I think the the, the one thing that you can say for sure about Brexit is nobody's going to be happy coming out of this. Whatever happens, whether we have a Brexit or whether it's, whether it's uh, in some way uh, delayed or even reversed, uh, there are going to be recriminations on almost on all sides. And those, what we've seen in recent times, those who have been in favor of Brexit are not happy with the type of uh, of, of of exit deal that is on offer. And uh, Theresa May withheld the vote because she couldn't get a commons majority for it. Uh, so nobody is happy. And when you look at who uh, who is to blame for this, this is what's going to happen in 2019, there's going to be a big blame game. Was it the terrible foreigners in Europe who uh, thwarted it? Was it the Remainer establishment in Britain, uh, not least in the uh, House of Commons? Uh, Or was the very idea of Brexit never what it was? promised to be by those who campaigned for it in the first place. So it's going to be a rather bitter British politics, regardless of what happens to the actual fact on the ground of whether we proceed with Brexit or not.
0: Daniel Franklin, for those who have not been involved in the process or following Brexit closely,
1: fundamentally, what is it all about? It's about whether Britain should remain a member of this club called the European Union, uh, after many years of membership and 2 years ago in a referendum Britain voted to leave by a fairly narrow margin but it was a clear result 52 to 48 but ever since that we've been arguing over exactly what this means and then negotiating over what it might mean with Britain's partners in the European Union uh, and because nobody is happy with what um the answer that has so far emerged from that, we find ourselves in a situation where Britain's future relationship with Europe is as murky as ever. Nothing has been clarified and all sorts of possibilities remain open.
0: And adding to the complexities of all of this, your colleague's Tom Wainwright writes the following, a country cannot write its own regulations without erecting barriers to trade with countries that have different ones. Brexit aims were mutually inconsistent.
1: Yes I think that goes to the heart of the problem that we wanted or the those who campaigned for Brexit uh, argued that we could as it were have our cake and eat it we could have all the uh, independence we wanted in writing our own rules and carry on have a great having a great trading relationship with with Europe seamlessly and it turns out that that isn't on offer if we want to have this close single market with the European Union uh, we have to accept the rules that are made uh, for that club in Brussels, which is uh, not something that people thought they were voting for. So there are hard choices to be made, and nobody wanted to face up to those choices.
0: So what will 2019 mean for Brexit?
1: A lot of recriminations, a lot of people unhappy with the uh, the, the answers that have the politicians have come up with in terms of uh, what should happen with Brexit, and quite possibly... Uh, we may even be asked to uh, to vote again on whether we want the thing at all. Let's turn to Wall Street, another turbulent
0: period on the global market here in the U.S., and you write the following, red lights are flashing not everywhere and not all at once, but enough to signal economic trouble in 2019.
1: Yes, a year ago, things looked very different. As we went into uh, 2018, there was a sense of broad optimism about the world economy you had a what people were calling a synchronized upswing um, places that have been in recession big emerging markets like Russia and Brazil were growing again Europe even had a spring in its step now things look rather different the emerging markets have wobbled uh, China is slowing Europe is has a lot of difficulties very obviously uh, and the big question I think is what happens in the United States which is the biggest economy in the world and by the middle of 2019 will have broken its record for the longest ever expansion. And that's obviously terrific. That's very good news that America has been charging ahead for so long. But it also makes people wonder how long can this last? and, And will we be approaching the time when this expansion comes to an end? And there are a number of a uh, number of reasons to think that this is going to be harder going from here on for the U.S. economy as well.
0: And one of the questions: When do we have to pay the piper? And I'm referring to an approaching twenty-two trillion dollar debt here in the U.S.
1: Well, this is one of the one of the reasons why people are starting to think that this can't go on for for so long. We see the r- impact of rising interest rates now starting to have an effect. The Federal Reserve had this incredibly difficult challenge of reversing the uh, extraordinary uh, monetary, uh, easy monetary policy that it had in the wake of the of the uh, great uh, recession of 2007, 2008. Uh, And so now there's there's that. There's the fact that Trump tax cuts will be running out of steam in terms of the stimulatory effect that that they had. And against all this is the backdrop of a trade war with China, which uh, isn't yet over and could also cause problems. So all these and potentially other difficulties mean that a a tougher time lies ahead for the American economy.
0: Two points on China and all part of the world in 2019 the cover story of The Economist. The Great Wall of Distrust, confrontation between America and China will spread, you write, beyond areas of trade. And The Perils of Nine, a focus on Xi Jinping, the president of China. Talk about both of these essays.
1: Uh, well, with The Perils of Nine, a, a, a sort of a curiosity that years ending in nine are quite tricky for China because they bring with them um, a number of anniversaries, which are hard to ignore, um, but also uh, difficult to to control. So, a hundred years ago, in 2019, um, there was the so-called May Fourth Movement, which was part of the, uh, the 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 events that led up to the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. So, it's part of the the story of of modern China. But it's an awkward one because it is a rebellion against um, an authority, authoritarian uh, regime, and that is in itself tricky for the Chinese government. Um, Thirty years ago, that movement was evoked by the students in Tiananmen Square, uh, which was then led to a brutal su- su- suppression of that uh, uh, of that um, demonstrations and. That's another difficult anniversary, 30 years since 1989 in the Tiananmen uh, Square demonstrations. And we also have 60 years since the exile of the Dalai Lama from Tibet, which 30 years after that led to some martial law being imposed in Tibet, so all these anniversaries make it a, a, I think, a hard year for the Chinese authorities to negotiate it. And you can certainly expect that censors there will be working overtime to try and control things. And yet, you also
0: predict that 2019 will be a big year for democracy.
1: Yes, because um, first of all, the world's biggest democracy, the world's most populous democracy, India, has an election. So does the, so does the world's third biggest democracy, Indonesia. Uh, And if you add it all up, countries with perhaps a third, more than a third of the world's population will be having national elections of one sort or another in the year ahead. So it's a, a big testing year for democracy. You're going to see played out again and again this fault line between globalists and nationalists. Uh, so I think it's a it's a great thing that so many people get the chance to vote next year. But, of course, that brings with it also shocks, surprises, uh, a certain amount of noise and tumult.
0: Closer to home, you're writing that populism is moving north. A look at Canada and its prime
1: minister, Justin Trudeau. How so? Well, Canada, one of the countries that will be holding an election next year. And you see some signs in, in some of the... Uh, uh, parties and some of the provinces in Canada that uh, populism is starting to make itself more felt. But I think Canada has been a, an interesting, fascinating example of a, a country which has maintained its liberal uh, credentials in the face of greater conservatism and populism elsewhere, still rather open, for example, to uh, immigration. Um, but that could be tested in an election year. So you, you, you might see other sorts of voices getting louder even in Canada.
0: A big focus, of course, in 2019 in your essay for The Economist is President Trump. This is what he had to say following the election about what he expects January will bring as the Democrats recapture the House of Representatives. The Senate remains in control by the Republicans.
3: But I want to send my warmest appreciation and regards to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. We really worked very well together. We have been working very well together. We actually have a great relationship. People just don't understand that, which is fine. And also to uh, perhaps looks like, I would think, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I give her a lot of credit. She works very hard and she's worked long and hard. I give her a great deal of credit for what she's done and what she's accomplished. Hopefully we can all work together next year to continue delivering for the American people, including on economic growth, infrastructure, trade, lowering the cost of prescription drugs. These are some of the things that the Democrats do want to work on, and I really believe we'll be able to do that.
0: That was President Trump one day after the midterm elections. Daniel Franklin, what are you hearing in his voice as he talks about bipartisanship? Will we see that here in Washington?
1: Well, bipartisanship is is fine as long as you can identify things that you actually want to Uh, work together on. But I think elsewhere, he's also said, watch it. If you attack me, I'll attack you back. And that is the Trump modus operandi. So you you would expect that on certain things, there may be scope to work together on infrastructure, for example. Certainly, President Trump will be very keen to keep this economic cycle going and to find ways of keeping the economy, the, 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 um, economy stimulated. But he's also going to face certainly heightened scrutiny, heightened questions about his own affairs, his own uh, tax affairs in particular. Uh, the Mueller inquiry is going to be uh, producing awkward results for him. So uh, it's, it's hard to see how that won't lead to explosions of one sort or another, which could in turn make this bipartisanship that people love to talk about, but is harder to actually deliver in practice, that might make it uh, quite a challenge.
0: And as you look at Capitol Hill in Washington from your perspective, how much pressure will Leader Pelosi, likely Speaker Pelosi, face within her own Democratic caucus?
1: I think the difficulty for the Democrats is not to overreach. They could very well do that and and, uh, create some quite juicy targets for the president simply because there is so much uh, pent up feeling uh, about the need to subject the president to greater scrutiny that he that he, than he faced under a, a Republican Congress. So, uh, for example, the big question will be impeachment. Might pre- impeachment proceedings start? That could be a huge distraction uh, from for for the Democrats and one that actually the president might actually welcome in in a strange way because it would create uh, something to uh, feed off for him. And he, he himself says he he feels he does that rather well.
0: With regard to the Democrats, this is what Leader Pelosi told reporters on Capitol Hill last month.
2: We will strive in that openness with American people as our partners because they will see the impact of legislation on their lives. We will strive for bipartisanship. We believe that we have a responsibility to seek common ground where we can. Where we cannot, we must stand our ground, but we must try. And so, by par- openness and transparency, accountability, bipartisanship—a very important part of how we will go forward.
1: Daniel Franklin, your reaction? Well, again, we've we've heard such things before. It would be nice if um, uh, bipartisanship could reign in Washington, but we haven't seen much of it. Uh, and it would be a surprise if if peace suddenly broke out in 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 the current uh, dispensation with. Uh, President Trump in the White House and uh, and Democrats controlling the House. Uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that is only one tweet away from breaking down. And we
0: certainly did not see a lot of bipartisanship during the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, which turned personal and at some point ugly during the proceedings in the Senate uh, before the Judiciary Committee. You're calling this the Kavanaugh court in The Economist. Why?
1: Well, I think that's a way of describing how many people will see it as a question of how the swing votes will now go in in the uh, Supreme Court, and uh, I think a lot of attention will be on the court because of the very fraught circumstances in which um, Kavanaugh was was uh, a- a approved, and the fact that um, the potential. Um, Conservative judgments that will support the president um, could now flow. So I think uh, there will be a lot of uh, scrutiny, a lot of attention on the court, and uh, it'll be perhaps even more uh, fraught than it was before.
0: Let's turn from. Let me turn for just a moment from issues we face here on Earth to what you call the new Moon Rush begins, and I want to go back to Pasadena, California. And let's listen as we reached a new milestone on the planet Mars. 20 meters, 17 meters, standing by for
1: touchdown. Touchdown confirmed.
0: (laughs) It's been a while since we've heard that from NASA.
1: Yes, and I think in uh, 2019, because of the 50th anniversary of the uh, of, of the landing on the moon, uh, you're going to hear a lot more excitement about um, lunar exploration and other sorts of exploration in, in space. There'll be a rekindling of that sense of of great uh, adventure and achievement in space. There are going to be a number of lunar missions um, in the year ahead, China on its way to the moon. Uh, these are unmanned uh, unmanned missions, but China landing on the far side of the moon. India has an ex- expedition to the moon. And Israel, interestingly, has one that is not run or not led by a state entity. That's a first. Uh, and that is, a, uh, I think, a, a sign of the times in that the role of private enterprise in space is one of the reasons why space has become such a, a, a new revived uh, area for, for endeavor
0: and new excitement as we saw with the Apollo program and more recently the space shuttle.
1: Yes, one of the things that will be happening next year and this is the uh, this is NASA again. This is not a private uh, enterprise. There will be a visit by NASA's New Horizons spacecraft to something called Ultima Thule. This is the furthest uh, encounter in the history of space travel right in the outer reaches. So I think that will be another another of these uh, uh, episodes that will fire up imaginations around the world.
0: A couple of other points in just a moment,
1: but how did The
0: Economist go about looking ahead at 2019? Because this is an expansive and extensive read.
1: Yes, we start really in the spring with uh, brainstorming, and then we uh, invite um, all sorts of people to give their opinion of what they think will be happening in the year ahead. We scan all sorts of uh, sources on what are going to be the things we know are going to be happening. So the anniversaries we've talked a little bit about, the elections, the big sporting events, for example. Uh, And then there's a question of judgment on the main trends and some of the social developments that are going to be happening in the year ahead.
0: For those listening on radio and on this podcast,
1: explain the cover. Well we're looking at a cover that is inspired by Leonardo da Vinci it's a kind of sketchbook illustrating what's in the publication but in the style of Leonardo that's because it's the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death in 2019 there'll be lots of celebrations of the one of one of the world's greatest geniuses and we also have by the miracle of of uh space and time travel we have uh, discovered a manuscript of Leonardo when he traveled forward 500 years just before his death and visited the world in 2019 and gave his impressions. So that's uh, an entertaining read and a way of looking through fresh eyes uh, at the world next year.
0: You serve as the executive editor of The Economist, so really your hand in all of these essays. But was there one in particular that you found most interesting?
1: Uh, Well, I I did enjoy the... um, essay by Yuval Noah Harari on um, the future of globalism and global solutions. It's something that's been under fire in many ways by the Trump administration not not least. Um, and we have a section in um, this publication on what we call Open Future looking at some of these big themes for the future and the future of the liberal world order. Uh, so that's I think quite a a, a, a profound take on Um, why you might need a global um, approach to global problems going ahead.
0: And let me bring two other essays on the table. Generation Next by Jonathan Rauch. He is a senior fellow at Brookings, pointing out that millennials will outnumber baby boomers in 2019, making us all feel old.
1: (laughs) Well, this is something that's been obviously on the way for some time. People have long been talking about the importance of millennials, whether you're looking at it from a business point of view and the consumer habits of the millennial generation, or looking at it from a political point of view and the, the, the likely impact on elections and voting habits of that generation. But this 2019 is the year... If you measure it in a certain way, a common way of measuring these generations, where at long last, millennials take over from the baby boomers who've really been the dominant generation for so so many years. So that's a, a moment that concentrates the mind. And one political note from Adam
0: Roberts, who covers the Midwest for The Economist, on Barack and Michelle Obama. What can we learn?
1: Well, he's uh, Adam is there in Chicago and watching the Obamas uh, become more and more prominent. That was already the case, I think, towards the end of uh, 2018, not least with the publication of Michelle Obama's book. But I think there was a, for a while, the point he makes is that uh, President Obama kept his counsel. Now he seems to be interested in speaking out more. Uh, And he still has a lot of support, so it creates a, a counterpoint to a very different administration.
0: And finally, my own personal takeaway after reading these essays and articles is that this is a look ahead at 2019, not really based necessarily on predictions, but based on the facts of what we've seen so far and what we could see moving ahead.
1: Yes, I think there's always a lot of that, that the place that you start when you look ahead is what you know and where you are at the moment. So there is a certain amount of looking ahead to things that you know are going to happen, whether they be uh, elections or the sorts of issues that the world is going to be grappling with in business or, or, or in technology. Um, but then you try to assemble all the information that we've seen already and add up to the the, the, the trends, the dynamic that you see. So that's the approach that's taken. What you can't see are the things that come from nowhere, the things that really take you by surprise. And year in, year out, I have the humbling job of assessing what we got right and what we got wrong in the previous edition. And it's often those things that that really come um, from almost from nowhere, whether they be uh, sudden political movements that flare up or or, um, natural disasters that can really shape the year. Daniel Franklin,
0: thank you very much for stopping by our C-SPAN radio studios here in Washington.
1: Thank you. And a
0: reminder, the cover story for The Economist, The World in 2019, also available online at theeconomist.com. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, available wherever you download your favorite podcast or on the web at c-span.org.